This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let's open in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. The letter to Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be. While you're turning there, let me add my invitation, welcome, greeting, and plea that you would come to the family dinner tonight. This is our last one. We've done so good. Let's finish these strong. And what Pastor Tim said is exactly what I would say. We would rather have you than extra food. And so if it's a choice between like, can I make something and get there? Just, just come. We'll have plenty of food. There's never, that's never a problem. God always provides. Just come. We'd love to have you there Register, not register, bring something out, bring something, just come on out. It'll be a great time and we'll finish these strong together. We've got good stuff planned for tonight. Now, as for this morning, we are taking a break from John's gospel for a few weeks to talk about Christian joy. And and here's how I introduced that last week. I have both a hope and I have a burden for this time. Uh, The hope is that we would be people who have seen and are continuing to look to the Lord to keep him before us. And in doing that, my hope is that the Lord would become our treasure in such a way that we would know that in his presence is a fullness of joy beginning in this life and continuing forever and ever and ever. That's a long sentence. I understand that I just said a long sentence. I'm, I'm not good at concise statements, especially when it comes to hope in Christ. And so uh, I, I think that goes a little bit along with my personality. I want to be thorough. I'm always trying to cram you know, more things into my time. I'm always trying to cram more things into my relationships. I always want a good deal on things. I'm always trying to just maximize words, maximize time, everything like that. So Let me say that again, because I want you to know what we're hoping for in this time. We all have eternity with God. So here it is, this long sentence one more time. I hope that what comes out of this is that we would be more a people who have kept the Lord before us. We're treasuring him above all other things And we know another way in the Psalms that we would say that is we've tasted and we've seen that in his presence is fullness of joy and that joy starts now and keeps going forever. That's the hope of these sermons. That we would see in his presence is fullness of joy now and that what starts now keeps going forever and ever and ever. Now the burden That's the hope. The burden is that we would take hold of that and not let it go. And I call that a burden because it's possible to have joy in the Lord and to let it then slip away. It's possible to at one point have had joy in the Lord and then to see it fall away. And I would say that that's not only possible, Church, that's prevalent. Uh, Last week, I said there were people, even Christians, when when I see coming, and you you know the same thing, you know people like this, like when you see them coming, you just start thinking, 
what are you going to be upset about today? I know you're going to have something to complain about. And so I, I told this little story. Uh, I, I was on an elevator a few years ago. It was a beautiful February day, and we don't get many beautiful February days in this part of the country. 70 degrees, sun was out, so I turned to this woman next to me in the elevator, and I just say, ah, it's a beautiful day today. And, and her response is, that's a little windy. And I was like, yeah, it's a little windy. It's February, we live in Chicagoland. It's usually, uh, you know, 33 and raining today, but we get 70 and sunny, and it's a little bit windy. Let's not be little bit windy kind of people. Let's be people who have a joy that is irrepressible and a joy that is certain and a joy that just drives us to be people of everlasting hope. And we, we looked at, when we were together last time, we looked at Psalm 16. And I said out of that psalm that there should be a distinctiveness to Christian joy because there's nothing else like it. No faith, no religion, nothing else in the world can hold a candle to God telling you that you have an everlasting hope in him. He tells us in that psalm that he'll be our refuge, a resting place, a source of peace. He'll bring you from death to everlasting life. And that's an unmatched promise of joy. So Christian joy is unique. But there is a point that I, I want you to hear me making every week that we do this in this short joy series. And, and that's this. Christian joy is unparalleled. It's nothing like it. Unique. But that doesn't mean it excludes sorrow or promise you, promises you the easy life or simplicity or full-time happiness. So when I talk about joy, I have in mind the kind of joy that offers comfort to the mourning, peace to the suffering, and hope to the hopeless. The Bible is full of great truths. If, if you're a Christian... So you have to hear me like this. If you're a Christian, Ephesians 1 says that you were chosen, that God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. 2 Corinthians 5 says that you are a new creation. Whatever what was part of your former life has passed away. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate you from God's love. And Peter says that you have an imperishable hope that's kept for you in heaven. That's where our joy comes from. It's not rooted in present circumstances, which is why the Apostle Paul says we can mourn with those who mourn and we can celebrate with those who celebrate because as God's people, we're headed toward a fullness of joy. We have some now, we get it all later. And I think that word for full, that word for fullness of joy is helpful because it reminds me that our joy doesn't have to be pretend. It doesn't have to fake something and try to be something that we're not. So think about what full life is. 
Now, if I told you that somebody was happy all the time, they'd never experienced a heartbreak, they've never been disappointed, they'd never heard no when they were hoping for yes, they've never had to make a tough choice. I mean, I could just keep going and going and going with that. But if I told you all of that, and then I asked, did that person have a real full experience of life? You'd have to answer no. No. Because life is complex and life has difficulty and part of life is sorrow and part of life is difficult choices and again on and on and on. It's the same thing with joy. The Bible tells us that we know joy when we receive God's good gifts but also we know joy through sorrow and longing and learning to trust God. And we know that's true because our only hope for having this kind of joy is, is if God gives it to us. Because we're never going to find that on our own. We're never going to come to these conclusions on our own. And that's why I have us in Hebrews 12 this morning. If we're going to know what true, full joy is, we're not going to start seeing that if we look at joy from our perspective. We have to find a better perspective, and that's going to come from Jesus. We're going to look at joy from Jesus' perspective. And so to start that, there are two things you have to know about Jesus. We just affirm these from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Two things to know about Jesus. First, Jesus is fully God. So when you think about God, he's a trinity. He's triune. He's a father, he's a son, and he's the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is God the Son, co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. So he's God, the Son, incarnated, and as the eternal God, he shares the glory of God fully with the other members of the Godhead. Uh, And the second thing that you need to know about Jesus is he's fully human. You can't get more human than Jesus. In fact, theologically, we would say it like this. Jesus is more human even than you or me. And and you might say, well, how does that work? If he's God and human, I'm more human because I'm only human. Well, no, that's not actually the way it works. It works this way because in God's original design for humanity, what he created was men and women to bear his image as the pinnacle of all that he made And our responsibility, our created and God-given task was to join him in ruling over the world that he had made for his glory. So he made something for his glory and said, I want you to take part with me in ruling over it. He never created anything as special as men and women. So not animals, not nature, not angels, nothing. So when the first man... And when the first woman chose to disobey God, then sin entered the world and it actually made them a little less human than God originally created them to be. Now, by the providence of God, we still bear his image. He still is able to redeem us. But sin was never part of God's design. So that's why I can say that Jesus is even more human than we are. He was like us but never stained by sin. Now, this is where we're going this morning. This is how all this kind of builds together. If we're going to pursue full joy, fully human joy, 
And if Jesus Christ is the fullest human, then we need to ask these questions. Did Jesus have joy? If he did, what is it? And if he had it, how can we have it too? That's the, that's the trail. That's the chain link. And let me tell you why it's, it's worth hiking this trail. Because the, the view at the end. You, all, you do the hike often because the view at the end is spectacular. And that's what we get if we hike the trail of Jesus' joy. And in this case, the view is Jesus. The reward is his joy. And the, and the gift is his joy in you. And that's where we end up this morning. The joy that Jesus has, he offers to us. So here's where, here's where we go this morning. First, again, as the fullest human, if Jesus was the fullest human to ever live, and we want to have a fullness of joy, we need to ask, did Jesus have a joy? That's the first question. If he did, what was, what is his joy? Because we want that joy too. And third, then how, how do we have his joy? And this is going to come very quickly. It's going to be from only two verses. So let's read together. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. <coughs> Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. <coughs> Follow along there with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the situation in Hebrews is this. It seems to be that Christians who were going to read this letter had grown what we'll just call kind of complacent and a little tired in their faith. Maybe it was because they weren't sure if they wanted to keep going. Probably it was because although the reward of their faith was a great promise, the present realities of their belief in God, they were finding that it put them at odds with the world. And so, in other words, they were suffering for their faith and, and, and they were wondering, is this worth it? Now, if you can't find some commonality, if you can't find a connection to that, grown a little bit tired in their faith, wondering if their faith really leads anywhere, wondering if their faith is worth it. I don't know how, what kind of connection I can make with you from the Bible. This is what most of us experience, not just once or twice in our lives, but frequently. Do we have the endurance? Do we have the stamina? Do we have the vision to keep going? And so here's how the writer of Hebrews answers this. First, what he does first is he reminds them of all these men and women who lived by faith before them. Some of them did great things, and there were, this, is what, this is Hebrews chapter 11. Some of them did great things that were remembered as, as heroes for their heroics. But if you read, <coughs> if you read Hebrews 11, 
what you notice is most of these people are not remembered for their heroics. Very poignantly, many of them are remembered because their lives didn't go so well. In fact, their lives often ended in horrific circumstances. So just as a sampling of this, look back uh, just a couple of verses at Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to start reading at verse 32. And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of, of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Put a big break in your Bible right now. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. These of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. See, we just read it. Some conquer and quench fire and fight lions, but more suffer and they're tortured and they end up with nothing at the end of their lives. Right now, you, we ask, well, what does this have to do with joy? What does being tortured have to do with joy? And that's where the writer of Hebrews turns to 12.1. And he says, what's going to weigh us down in this world? This is, this is a surprise answer, so get this. What's going to weigh us down in this world isn't actually hardship. It's not sickness. It's not those things that we normally associate with misfortune. The things that will weigh you down in this world are loving it too much. It's caring too much about the things of this world. It's not taking the destruction of your sin seriously enough and letting your sin grab onto you and bring you down, kind of drag behind you so you're slowed down by it. That's, that's what will take away your ultimate joy. It's not your hardship. When you love the world too much, it will have a hold on you. And that hold will become more and more difficult for you to wrestle out of. And so we ask, well, what then do we do? And the writer of Hebrews said we look in two directions. Behind us, we see a bunch of men and women who have treasured the word of God and his promises in their day. And they've let go of anything that the world has to offer. And now they've been rewarded. So we look back. That's the cloud of witnesses. And then we look forward and we look up to Jesus, who is the very word of God. And so when we talk about the promises, we look to Jesus because he is the promises of God made flesh. 
And what's the, what's the picture that the writer of Hebrews picks up to show us what this looks like? He says it's like a race. Racing, it's a common, running is a common biblical metaphor for life. So the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. But there are lots of races. You can have all kinds of races. What kind of race is life? Life's a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. Life's a marathon. And we need to know that because the type of race that you're going to run determines how you're going to train for the run, how you're going to train for the race. It determines the strategy that you're going to set out to use when you begin to run. Now, I ran a marathon. Don't be impressed by that. I did not run it quickly, and I did not like any part of running the marathon. I did, however, run a marathon. It's uh, about 20 years ago. Actually, 20 years ago this fall, I ran a marathon. There's basically one thing you need to know about running a marathon. You just need to keep running. That's the only part of the strategy you actually need for a marathon. You have to keep running. So I trained. I planned. I did all these things. And and I was told this would happen when I ran a marathon. So the longest training run that I did before the actual marathon. So marathon is 26.2 miles. The longest training run that I went on was, I think, something like 16 miles. And as I was approaching the race, I kept hearing people who'd done this before me say that a little beyond the longest I've ever, I'd ever run, 16 miles, right around the 18-mile mark, something happens. Your legs will just want to quit. They'll become slow, and you'll feel heavy, and, and your body will tell you it's just not going to run anymore. If you want to finish a marathon, you have to push through that, and you just have to keep your legs moving. So here I am, running the race, And I don't know if it was because I'd heard that. I don't know if it's because I'd never run that far at any one point in my life. It might have been because my left knee had swelled up to about one and a half times its normal size. That probably had something to do with it. Uh, I I had an injury when I was 18 or 19 that just never quite uh, healed the same. But around mile 18, I started to slow down. Just Legs felt heavy, body felt tired, lungs felt like they were burning. And then, and then I saw this medical tent, and I thought, I better get this knee looked at. So I swing in there just, just for a minute or two, and I told them, I said, hey, I, I'd injured my knee a couple years before this, and now it's really swelling up. And so they kind of you know, flexed it a little bit, did a little bit of motion, and they said, okay, it's probably just inflammation. So you have two choices. You can stop running right now, or you can keep running it probably isn't going to injure it anymore, but once you stop running, your knee's just going to kind of swell up, it's going to kind of lock up, and you're done running today. So I have a choice to make. So I, they gave me six Advil uh, really quick. I, I've, I've asked the doctor later. Six Advil is like the absolute maximum you ever want to take. I'm not recommending that in any way, but they said I could take six Advil, so I slammed six Advil, and I was like, I'm just going to keep going. Because I knew, and I knew they were right, if I stopped running, I mean, like, if I stopped for more than about two minutes, I was done. I was just going to be done running that day. So I finished the race. Life's a marathon. The only way to finish it is to keep running. 
there will be massive temptation to give in to what's easier. We do that not by just stopping an actual run. We do it by chasing idols. We do it by looking for a comfort in this world. But don't do that. Folks, there will be a tendency as a Christian to want to slow down and coast and maybe just stop and rest for a little while. Don't do that. You can say, you know, I've served a lot. I've given a lot. Try to be faithful, but things have been hard. Maybe it's just time for me now to stop running this way. It'll be easier if I didn't serve as much. It'd be easier if I didn't give as much. Maybe if I could just keep a little more of my time, my money. Maybe even I won't love people as, as boldly and sacrificially. You know, it's, it's hard work loving other people. So maybe if I just kind of keep my distance from people, just kind of keep to myself, life would be easier. And the writer of Hebrews just is saying, don't. Don't coast. Don't get complacent. Don't get greedy or selfish or cynical or bitter or jealous or distracted. Run. Keep running. And how do we avoid all of those things? Because that, that kind of temptation is really common. When, when, when you run, your lungs burn, your legs feel like rubber, when you see others who have it better or easier, we just want to give up and say, you know what, forget it, Lord. Faith, faith's too hard. I want something I can control. I, I want to believe, believe that I can make my own destiny. I want something maybe where I get the glory. How do we keep running then? That's basically the big question of Hebrews. How do we keep running then? And the answer, we get it here in chapter 12. We look to Jesus, and more specifically, we keep running by looking at his joy and making his joy our joy. Another way that I could say this is he ran too. Jesus was running too. So what did he run for and, and how do we run for that? It's another way of answering this. Verse 2 of Hebrews 12 is the answer. It says that, that he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is the absolute best place to start because when we're talking about a race, it means that Jesus has already started it. He's already ran the course. He's not still running. He already crossed the finish line. Now here's where the, <coughs> here's where the marathon analogy and, and our, our faith kind of <coughs> break down and it's a really good thing. Uh, if we only fix our eyes on Jesus and run after him, we are assured of finishing the race and finishing it well. That's why I say that the marathon analogy breaks down because you're not guaranteed that you're going to finish every race that you start. But if we look at the race of our lives and we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're guaranteed of finishing it well. It doesn't mean we get to skip the middle part, but we don't have to wonder if we're going to make it. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work will bring it 
in us to completion. Folks, we're not, we're not waiting to see if Jesus had the right stuff. This verse tells us that he did. He endured the cross, despised its shame, and became the finisher or perfecter of our faith when he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. What do you do when you finally finish a race? You rest. You sit down. So that's the first thing. Jesus finished the race. The second thing this tells us is that he gave us a model for how we can finish it too. So how? How did he do it? And the answer is, he kept joy in front of him. Read it again. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is Jesus' joy? What is it? It's right here in verse 2. It's what he has now. It's the Father's love and the salvation of people. So if somebody says, what was Jesus after? Why did Jesus run? What is joy to Jesus? The answer is it's the Father's love and it's salvation of his people. That's what Jesus kept in front of him. He loved his Father, so he did his will. And he carried out his part of the redemptive plan. And his reward was he gets to return to the Father victorious and whole. And the other thing that Jesus has in mind when he runs the race is people like you and me if we believe in him. And I know that because it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. He didn't need to endure the cross to get back to heaven. That part was open to him at any point. He could have just gone back. The cross was about us. It was about people in desperate need of mercy, hopeless without somebody else to atone for sin and take our place in death. And so the joy that kept Jesus running, the joy that was the finish line for him was unity with the Father and redemption for undeserving sinners, among whom you and I are counted if we call upon his name and believe that he really does live. That's the joy that Jesus had before him. And then my, my very last question, so that's did Jesus have joy what was his joy? The last question is, is it possible for us to have that kind of joy? I think it is. I know it is. Because of what it says in John, what Jesus said in John 15, 11. There he says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So again, what's Jesus' joy? Hebrews 12.2 says it's connectedness to the Father and salvation of his people. And now in John 15, Jesus is saying his disciples, by extension us, can have that joy and not just a little bit of it, but we can have it fully. Uh, I can sum up the context of John 15 in two words. Love and abide. 
There are two words that, that make sense here because abiding is all about dwelling together or sort of being held tight to one another. This is exactly why Jesus returned to sit at the right hand of God the Father because he wanted to be connected to him. And then the other word is love. Love is what Jesus gives us and through him it's what he invites us to give the rest of the world. Two verses after Jesus says he wants to give us his joy, he says that there is no greater joy than the gift of love that somebody would lay down their life for their friends. Uh, I can summarize it like this. The joy of Jesus is seen in sacrificial love. The joy of Jesus is seen in sacrificial love. So we glorify him when we love like he loves. He loved his father and wanted to be close to him. When we love God, who is through Christ, our, our father, we're running like Jesus runs. When we've run, how can we do the will of God? When we, when we run, how can we do the will of God? What does his word teach us? when we're longing for connection to him in prayer, when we're abiding in him like Jesus did, that's when we're growing in love. And then we sacrificially love other people. When we do that, we're putting the joy that Jesus had on display for other people. Now think about it like this. Most of the world is selfish and cynical. What happens when you see somebody being generous and you, when, you, when you see somebody going on and on about what's wrong with the world and then a Christian says, what's the difference? When somebody's generous and somebody else is just totally cynical, what's the difference? You know the difference right away when somebody's kind, when somebody's charitable, when somebody's giving, when somebody's sacrificially loving. Yes, we know the world can be a challenging place. But praise be to God that we have his hope in the midst of this life. And so there is reason for great joy. That kind of contrast, that kind of difference is so stark that even when people don't know quite what it is, I guarantee they'll notice. And many will want it. Uh, here's what this comes down to. If your joy is, is first and foremost rooted in this world, you'll never be free to have this kind of, fr- of real, lasting, satisfying joy. You'll always have to worry that something's going to come and take the thing that gives you joy away from you. But if your joy is in Christ and from Christ, it's from beyond this world. It comes from somebody who's already, not just started the race, but finished the race, finished life. He's already conquered the world. He now reigns over the world. And you're absolutely free to love other people and serve and give and and even endure hardship and torment because no matter what happens, you have a savior and a friend who has overcome the world, and, and he says he loves you. He says he's working in you. 
And he says that there is an inheritance and a treasure laid up for you in heaven. If your joy is somewhere else, you'll never be able to peacefully rest. Because you will know you'll never be totally secure. But if your joy is in Jesus, you can know for certain that it's a complete joy because Jesus has perfected it and it's abundant joy because Jesus has taken it all the way to the source of life itself and into the presence of God. And so it's a full joy. It's a done joy. He sat down. There's there's nothing more that needs to be done. That's why Jesus could sit down. And this joy can be ours through Jesus. So those are my my answers to those questions. Did Jesus have a joy? Yes. It's connectedness to the Father and it's the salvation of his people. Did he complete his joy? Yes. He sat down at the right hand of God. And can we have his joy? Yes. When we are connected to him, when we call upon his name, his joy can become our joy. And so for the joy that was set before him, he endured all this. Now he sits at the right hand of God so we can too. That's the promise of of the gospel. Do you realize that not only does Jesus sit at the right hand of God, but you go to sit there too when you go to heaven. That's joy. And it starts now. So let's pray together. God, may we know your joy and have your peace and your hope. And may it be full and complete for the praise of your glory For our growth and grace, give us this kind of joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.